All right, so we are in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to be go through verses 20 through 28 tonight. Uh, my family and I like to take little vacations to the hill country. For years, uh, we had a my, Carrie's oldest sister had a place, a house in Wimberley that we could use anytime we wanted, which was nice, especially when we had very little money. That was a free vacation house. And then, uh, then she and her husband had the audacity to retire and move in there. So we lost our vacation house. Do you believe the nerve of those people? So now we have to rent places in the hill country. We still enjoy it. Uh, but one time years ago, we were driving from somewhere, some little town in the hill country down to San Antonio, and we ended up on a road called the Devil's Backbone. Anybody ever been on the Devil's Backbone? You know what it is? Yeah. Yeah, it's aptly named. It, it goes up and down and curves in and out. And um, I was driving, and uh, I'm, I'm not the slowest or most careful driver, but uh, after a while, I looked over at my, my lovely wife, and she looked like she wasn't doing too well. Um, Carrie is prone to car sickness. Usually she can manage it, but she got very, very sick that day. And when I say I got very sick, I mean it was a long time before she felt good. And so one of the things we learned that day and in days to come is if we're on a road or we're taking a trip down a road that, is, that has a lot of elevation changes or a lot of curves, she needs to drive, not me. Because for some reason, and maybe some of you are more scientifically astute than me, when you're driving, you're not as likely to get sick. And the theory, I've read lots about this, the theory that makes the most sense to me is that somehow your brain can anticipate the changes if you're in control and therefore you don't get sick. In other words, here's the moral of the story, you're happier if you know where you're going, right? So here's another story to illustrate that same thing. So imagine two people in a hospital. Two very different people in a hospital. One is a man who drove drunk, got into a wreck, and shattered both of his legs. He's in intense pain. The other person is a woman in the last stages of labor with her first baby. She's in intense pain too. But which one of the two is handling the pain better? Well, I would say she is. And not just because she's a woman. I've heard women say, oh, we're tougher. You know, okay, you can say that. That's, I can't argue, but... She's handling it better because her pain is producing something good. The man with the broken legs, all he has is regret and the hope that maybe he'll walk again. She knows that when this pain ends, it ends with something I've been hoping for and dreaming of all my life. And what we're talking about in both those stories is hope. The difference is hope. Hope is the expectation that something's coming. The expectation that if I can just make it a little further, it's all going to be worth it. I told you last week as we rolled into 1 Corinthians 15 that this is one of the best, I shouldn't say the best, one of the, one of the key foundational chapters in the Bible and that it answers three questions. It answers the question, what is the gospel? What is this good news, the central message of the Christian faith? Number two, how do we know it's true? And number three, where are we headed? It answers those three questions in 1 Corinthians 15. And last week we looked at the first two questions. What is the gospel? Well, it's that 
God became a man named Jesus who came into the world and died in our behalf and then rose again. That's the gospel story. And then how do we know it's true? Because of the resurrection. Every other religion, uh, you know, Muslims have to say, well, I, I sure hope that Muhammad was right. And Buddhists have to say, I hope Buddha was right. And Mormons have to say, I hope Joseph Smith was right. But we don't have to say that. We know that Jesus is who he said he was because he rose from the dead. And we talked last week about all the reasons we can trust that that event actually happened. But today we're going to talk about that third question. Where are we headed? And that's when we get into that portion of this chapter. And just so we know where we were last week and, and what, we, what we're headed into, I'm going to pick up from verse 14, which we talked about last week, leading up to verse 20. So verse 14 says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If there's no resurrection, then Christians are the, the most unfortunate people on earth because they put their hope in something that's not true. So he picks up verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in its own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. So one of the things we look forward to, one of the sources of our hope is a new life. Not just the, the born again new life that we have when we come to know Christ. That's just the beginning of a literal new life, a, a fresh start, a new beginning on earth. It says that Jesus is the first fruits. And that's a term we don't use today, but it comes from Leviticus 23. When the Jews had a festival, when uh, the harvest would come in, they would bring their first fruits, the first things they harvested. They'd take them to the temple and offer them to God. And that was an act of faith. That was a way of saying, Lord, I'm willing to give you the first things I harvested because I trust that if I believe in you, you're going to mean you're going to make sure there's a lot more where that came from. I'm giving up my first fruits because I think you're going to bless my harvest with even more. And so when Jesus is raised up on Easter Sunday, that's the first fruits. He's saying there's a lot more where that came from. I'm I'm God's harvest, but there will be many, many more who will follow in my footsteps. And he contrasts Adam and Jesus. This is, this is one of two places where Paul does this. You can look in Romans 5, 12 through 21, and he makes the same argument that there are two people that are sort of polar opposites in the human history. There's Adam, and because Adam sinned, death came into the world. And then there's Jesus, and because Jesus never sinned and then died on our behalf and rose again, he brought life back into the world. Adam brought death into the world. Jesus conquered death. Adam brought sin. Jesus eliminated sin, took, took the sin away. So uh, Jesus is, in a way, the last Adam in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, we're talking about the idea of a final resurrection, and that's something that a lot of Christians don't know about. It's not often preached about. 
But if you look for it, it's all through the New Testament. In fact, this was an argument even in Jesus' time. You probably remember the two biggest or the two most prominent uh, groups within Judaism were the Pharisees and Sadducees. And one of the differences between the two was the Pharisees believed in a bodily resurrection of the righteous at the end of history. And the Sadducees thought this life is all there is. And Jesus was clearly, in this case, on the side of the Pharisees. He, he talked about it often. Uh, Paul, uh, by the way, we don't usually talk about this. All we talk about is what happens when you die. Notice Paul doesn't mention anything about that in this chapter. And the truth is, there is surprisingly little information in Scripture about what happens to us when we die. Surprisingly, that's not the focus of Scripture. Now, we know that Jesus called it paradise, said to the man dying next to him, today, today you will be with me in paradise. I love those two words, today and paradise, because today means there's no purgatory. You don't go into the ground and fall asleep and wait for the end of time. No, today you'll be there. And then that word paradise which was a Persian word. It came from uh, the Persian kings would have a private garden where only they and their loved ones could go and, and enjoy the, the beauty of nature. And so Jesus was saying, that's what it'll be like for us. It's our private place where we enjoy the best of everything, where we, we get to uh, enjoy the, the garden of the king. So it sounds pretty good. Paul said to be absent in, in 2 Corinthians 5, next, you know, when, once we eventually get to 2 Corinthians, we'll get to it, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we know that there's no lag time. When you breathe your last breath here, your next breath will be heavenly air, and that's good news. When you close your eyes the last time here, you open them and you see glory. And that's very good news. And it's very reassuring for those of us who've lost loved ones in Christ. Um, Paul also said he got called up to heaven. Remember, we, we looked at this earlier and the things he saw were too wonderful to tell. So all of that sounds good, but there's very few specifics. We don't know. Do we have bodies in that next uh, realm or not? Will, you know, will we be able to recognize each other? I think so, but we don't know. Uh, but there's a lot more information about what happens when Christ returns. And there is a bodily resurrection coming. And there's going to be more details about that resurrected body in this chapter. But for now, just know that's what we look forward to. And by the way, whenever I talk about this, there are people who are bothered by it. Because it, it's not what they've been told, and it's not what they've been thinking all this time. They thought, all I have to do is just get to my point of death, and then I'm there. Then I'm to my final destination, and everything's great. And this makes it sound like, well, that's not quite the final destination. We have to wait till Christ returns, and then that's when we get our new body, and that's when we inhabit the new earth, and that, that really disturbs them. And, and I want to say, the way... The way I work it out in my own mind, okay? This is me. This is not scripture. I picture it like this. I imagine a, a, a soldier out on the front lines, and he wins the Congressional Medal of Honor, and they bring him home from the war. And they put him in a luxury hotel in Washington, D.C. for a week. At the end of that time, he gets to meet the president. He goes on national TV. In the meantime, he's eating good food. He's sleeping in a nice soft bed. His family's there. Everything's wonderful. It's so much better than where he just was. He just loves it. But he knows at the end of that week, he gets to go home. 
So does he enjoy where he is? Absolutely. It's so much better than he just came from. But he still looks forward to going home because home is home. And I think that's what it's going to be like for us. When, if we pass away before Christ returns, I think we're going to be, you know, being in his presence and being in a place where all of our pains are gone is going to be wonderful. And we're going to rejoice and we won't have, we, it'll, be, it'll be a place of no sorrow. And yet there'll still be a part of us that says, I'm looking forward to when the, the new earth is begun, when my body is resurrected. And, and the things are finally, when Christ reigns over all, when everything is the way it should have been. So that is what we have to look forward to, a new life. But not just that, we also look forward to justice. Look at verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. You remember Sunday we talked about from the book of Amos, let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. There's that in the cry, in the, in the heart of any person who is growing in Christ, there's that cry to see a world that is just, a world that is righteous, where all this evil and, and uh, ugliness is gone. And what Paul is saying here is that's the world that's coming. When he says that Jesus is going to deliver the kingdom to his father after destroying every rule and authority and power, that's, that's spiritual warfare language. Let me just give you an example of another place where that language is used. Colossians 1.16. For in him, meaning Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So Jesus, what it's saying is at the end of time, every power that is opposed to righteousness, every, every earthly ruler who oppressed his people, Every uh, wealthy person who got away with evil because they could hire a good attorney. Um, every, every criminal who got off scot-free on a technicality. Um, and certainly every demon that ever plagues us and Satan himself. All will be brought to humility. All will be brought to humiliation and will be brought, brought to justice. And there will be no more evil on the earth. He says in verse 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's, that's language from the Psalm. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, I will make your enemies your footstool, which is a really picturesque way of saying Jesus is going to walk all over. Every enemy. Do you remember, you know, we, all, we hear all the time the, the term Armageddon, but do you remember what the Bible actually, how the Bible actually describes Armageddon in, in the book of Revelation? It's not much of a battle. All the, all the armies of evil are amassed on the plains of, of Megiddo, and Jesus shows up with a sword protruding from his mouth, and they're all wiped out just like that. So if you had any thought that you were going to be some kind of angelic warrior and you're going to go around kicking people left and right, you're not going to be needed. Jesus is going to say the word, and they're going to be destroyed. It's not a fair fight, is my point. Jesus will walk all over his enemies. There will be justice on earth once and for all. And then there's also a reverse of the curse. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The curse of sin is death, right? Death entered the world with Adam. When Adam and Eve sinned, that's when pain entered the world. That's when sickness entered the world. And that's when death entered the world. 
And I look forward to a world without that stuff. The story of Jesus at Lazarus' tomb, we're gonna, I'm going to do a series after the one I'm in now uh, about the I am statements in the book of John. One of them is, I am the resurrection and the life in John chapter 11. That's what he said just before he went to Lazarus' tomb. You know, the shortest verse in the whole Bible is in that chapter. Jesus wept. And that's, Jesus wept because he saw the weeping of his friends around that tomb. It's always struck people as ironic. Why did he weep when he knew he was just about to say, Lazarus, come forth, and out Lazarus would come? Well, uh, you're going to have to hear this again in a few weeks when I preach on it, but uh, scholars will tell you the term weep that is used there doesn't mean sorrow as much as it means anger. It says Jesus was moved in spirit. It's a word that you would use for the snorting of a horse. You know, he was agitated. He was angry. Why would Jesus be angry? Not because those people were weeping. He wasn't blaming them for being sad. I believe he was angry because he hated death. Because this wasn't the world he made. He did not make a world where people would suffer and die. Where a parent would have to bury his child. Or where a husband would have to bury his wife. Or where kids would have to be orphaned. He, he didn't make that kind of world. Death is an invader. It has no place in God's perfection. And I, I am privileged to do funerals. That's one of, the, one of the experiences. I think Merle would say the same. I wouldn't say we enjoy doing it, but it's something we're privileged to do because we get to we get the honor of summing up someone's life and comforting their family, and it's good ministry, and yet I look forward to the day when I never do it again. Because it's hard. It's hard to see people hurt, and people are hurt by that. So I look forward to a day when there are no more funerals and no more burials. For that matter, no more hospitals, and no more aging, and no more disease, and no more chemotherapy and radiation, and no more crime on TV and accidents and disasters. All that stuff is going away. It's hard for us even to imagine a world like that. But that's what we will have. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Revelation says that death will be cast into the lake of fire. It, it pictures it like it's a person. And it's just a picturesque way of saying God is going to destroy death once and for all. And we will rejoice at that day. And then finally, uh, we look forward to the day when God is fully glorified before all the universe. It says in verse 27, For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is, he is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. Don't worry, we're going to talk about that. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Now, yeah, sometimes Paul can be hard to understand. Peter says it himself. But all this, these two verses are saying is there's no rivalry in the Godhead. There's never a rivalry between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's never a time when Jesus says, Oh, come on, Father, why, why do you get all the glory? Or why the, when the Holy Spirit says, I want people to talk about me more. There's no rivalry. What it's saying is, when all this is done, everything will be under the authority of Almighty God, even Jesus Himself. Not because Jesus is inferior to His Father. It's just the way 
they, their roles work. Now, I just said those words. I don't claim to understand them. Okay, so if you ask me to explain how the Trinity works, I will not be able to do so. All I can tell you is, that's what the scriptures teach, that the Son chooses to subject himself to the Father. The Father loves the Son. The Holy Spirit shines glory on both of them. And it's the way the Godhead works. It's one God, and yet these three persons. God will be glorified. When it says God will be all in all, what it means is, Everything on earth will once and finally, in the universe for that matter, once and for all and at last give perfect glory to God. Right now it doesn't. Right now you and I can look around all around and we can see problems in creation. For all the beauty of creation that still exists, we can see flaws, we can see problems, we can see natural disasters and uh, pollution and various things, some caused by man and some that don't seem to be caused by man, but all of it someday will speak of God's glory. Habakkuk 2.14 says, The earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of God as waters cover the sea. So every molecule on earth will speak of his glory. I, one sentence that kind of summed up what hope is. I, I want you to think about this. It says, Hope means that everything good will turn everything bad will turn out good someday. That everything good will be returned, everything good that we lost will be returned to us, and the best is yet to come. So everything bad will become good, everything good will come back, and the best is yet to come. So when it says everything bad will turn to good, we'll be able to look back and see the times in our lives when we went through the deepest and darkest valleys, and through the eyes of God we'll finally understand, oh, that's what he accomplished in those moments. Now I get it. We just have to trust him until then. Everything, nothing good will be lost to us forever. Well, you might say, but I lost my loved one, or I lost my health, or I lost my, uh, my uh, savings. Well, all that will be returned to us hundredfold, right? We don't ever lose anything good forever in Christ, and then the best is yet to come. That just means those first two things I said, they don't even touch the best stuff, because I don't think God's able to explain it to us. How wonderful that next life is going to be. So let me just close with this. This is kind of an illustration that I, I had when I, I thought of when I got to this idea of God will be all in all and how the world will someday fully glorify God. So imagine you have a friend who keeps an immaculate house. You know, she's the kind of person who, when you get there, the yard just looks like something out of a magazine. The house is a perfect place to come and eat lunch or, or have a party. I mean, everything is in its place. It's beautiful. It's, it's glorious. And she goes away. Imagine she goes away for a year. And she leaves a neighbor boy in charge of the house. He's supposed to come over and mow the yard and keep up the house in every way. And you go by every once in a while just to see how things are. And this neighbor boy is not doing the best job. Things are starting to deteriorate while your neighbor's gone. And it really bothers you because you're thinking, this doesn't remind me of her at all. You can still see traces of her influence, but you know, there's, there's grime on the windows and he's not, he's mowing, but he's not weed eating. And uh, you know, there's, there's some problems in the backyard. There's a, there's a, a leaking pipe that you see that he's done nothing about. And there's all kinds of problems with the house and it really bothers you. But you also know when she comes home, she's going to put everything right. She's not going to rest 
until everything is put back the way it was, the way it should be. And that's the world we live in. Right now, we can look around our world and we see traces of the beauty of God's creation. We see enough traces of them that it causes us to rejoice, but we see other things that give us sorrow. And someday he's coming back and he's gonna set things right. Our job right now is to glorify God's kingdom, and that's the process of setting things right as best we can. But when God comes, he'll put it all back together once and for all. And all will be in all, right? That's a glorious thing to think about. Let me pray one more time as we close. Lord, we thank you for this good news, for this wonderful hope. We pray, Lord, that we would walk in that hope daily. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.